Hey, welcome to this week's episode of Hollywood Breaks. It's good to be with you this morning. Keith and I really look back to understand a lot of things that we've seen in the past and what's coming up, starting with the end of Dick Clark Productions, what that means for me personally, uh, starting out my career there, and really what means a trend in the industry is recognizing one generation passing away, new things coming. And of that, of course, that plays itself out with the new deal that Chris Nolan has, not with Warner Brothers, not maybe not a surprise, and really the understanding of what Disney's doing, the impact of a, a series like Ted Lasso, and maybe the need for new genres. So. Thanks for listening and welcome to Hollywood Breaks. Uh, I was reading an article from uh, Matt Belliani, who um, has started this uh, newsletter. It's called Puck, and it it has various different sections on Washington, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and Wall Street. And he writes about Hollywood, obviously. And he this the most recent post was about Dick Clark Productions. And I know that you sort of have a soft spot in your heart for Dick Clark Productions. It's where you got started. It's where I got started. Yeah, for sure. Uh, apparently, it has been absorbed into Media Rights Capital, which I guess is the company that bought it. Wait, so Dick Clark Productions is no longer? No longer. Wow. And apparently now it's the new head. It's it's called M, It's called MRC Live Events or something like that. That's the like, new divisional title. And I guess they brought this guy over from E and I guess he had a staff meeting and he basically said, yeah, with that whole division, we're not referring ourselves to Dick Clark anymore. That it's basically adapt or die is basically the mantra now. So, Oh my gosh. I'll have to send it to you so you can read it. Cause it, it might tug at the strings of your heart because it's sort of tied into sort of the idea of how award shows are on the downslope and things are falling apart. Then viewership is down. How do we innovate? Blah, 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 blah. Is the answer just giving a show to a streamer like Amazon did with the country music awards. And apparently that was sort of like a, that's only a one year deal. And it was only because CBS black uh, blanched at what they wanted that, what the, the association was asking them to pay or so it was just sort of like, no way we're not doing that. So who knows? Anyway, it's just another another part of the industry that's breaking. <laughs> yeah, what I, in my mind, I'm thinking, do I need to even explain on this podcast who Dick Clark is? Because there's some reality, like, does Dick Clark's name even have any relevance anymore? No. We're clearly the, the guy who did American Bandstand while we were growing up to really what we wouldn't really know behind the scenes how many award shows that he did, but the American Music Awards, which is the first show that I did uh, with Dick Clark. Um, that's where Michael Jackson got all of his, all that big handful of trophies when we were a kid. Yeah. And, um, you know, the night that I worked, I worked two shows. The first show I worked was when Snoop Dogg was first introduced really to a, to a global audience. So there's a major, major pop culture moments that were happening. And it was, I mean, Dick Clark was alive then. So it's, it's honestly a part of it. But it, what's funny is, is like, I see Ryan Seacrest's career really is just it's a carbon copy of what dick clark's doing and clearly ryan seacrest is um you know notable today because he's around but it gives you a reference of like hum i wonder what ryan seacrest's brand will be worth 50 years from now you know it seems so heavy now and just fades away doesn't it yeah i mean i'll be honest i don't i didn't really know him from american bandstand excuse me dick clark i knew him from hundred thousand dollar pyramid on oh, right. Monday sure. through Fridays and Rock and Eve. That's how I New Year's Rock and Eve. That's how I knew him. Because I obviously was born 
Although many people may think I'm older than this, I was not alive during the American bandstand craze. Although it was shot in Philadelphia, for those of you who don't know that. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that's how I knew him. Uh, and it's an interesting contrast with, because I know that Ryan Seacrest often looked up to Dick Clark and there was a sense that he was the next generation's Dick Clark. You know, although you almost feel like he's sort of passing into into the sort of not sense necessarily the sunset of his career, but his money, he made a lot of his money on the Kardashians. That was his sort of invention. And that's now ending. And, you know, he still has his radio show, I think. Um, and he still does American Idol and he does uh Regis or whatever that show is now. Ryan and whoever his co-host is. is oh, Kelly. Kelly. Kelly Ryan and Kelly. Ryan. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean he's there's definitely parallels. Um but I don't think it's necessarily the same because Dick, like much like you pointed out earlier, Dick Clark was sort of the advent of a new generation. It's like his American bandstand was broke so many new bands and were cultural moments. I don't think Ryan Seacrest can claim the mantle as much as Dick Clark did for as long as he did. Yeah, like introduction. I mean, he wasn't, he was Ed Sullivan ish, wasn't he? Where let, yeah, he, uh, it's his interview with John Lennon and such that people got to know some face to face time. And it's a total different group. Ed Sullivan was sure there's a performance show, but this was kids dancing. And I think what that did to some other cultures um, that played itself out was just like just teens dancing in a show. And there was a lot, and it defined that generation. You think of a lot of a, the sort of bigger movies over the course like Greece for example has a very Dick Clark-esque moment in it when the dance contest that was very much sort of riffing off Dick Clark same thing mm -hmm. in Hairspray which was a big cultural moment for a while back in the early 80s and then re redid in 2000 also leaned heavily into sort of the Dick Clark American Bandstand thing uh, that thing you do had a moment so very similar to that and it's just you, he was definitely more culturally involved I would argue than Ryan Seacrest but to the Back to the article, it just was sort of talking about how Dick Clark Productions created all of these award shows, like um, the, the, Golden Critics, the Golden Globes. He made it the big production that it became. Yeah. Um, the People's Choice Awards, I think, was also him. Yeah, so American all these Music Awards. American Music Awards. Even the Jerry Lewis Telethon, which, again, I think I'd have to explain to Connor, <laughs> yes. right? <laughs> but uh, that's something that was yeah. part of Labor our Day lives. Telephone. Definitely yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting because it, you can an uh, awesome uh, topic because it really shows us the moment that we're in, where things, the relevance of a time and a place has been has, is moving on. Very obvious. It happens all the time, but we can just feel the end of that era taking place. But it's not necessarily disappearing, right? Because the TikTok phrase. It's just people dancing to music. You were <laughs> just seeing it in a different way, consuming it in a different way, recognizing yeah. a different way, and probably allowing like the dancers to be the influencers more than the host. It's an unhosted mm -hmm. show. Because, oh, yeah. TikTok's hosting it, but yeah, uh, hosted show. But uh, and the curation is happening through AI. But there's some repeatability to what what the craze feels like. Is like we're just we're seeing that version of it as relevant as Dick Clark's name's taken off the building as you know, a brand new version of it uh, pulling itself forward. You know, it's interesting because Matt's article also sort of highlights, well, we don't really know what the next iteration of this, of the award shows will be. Are they going to die away? Like, you know, last year's Oscar was a complete disaster. And that was 
host list. But at the same time, you think about it, and the idea of a host is sort of very much last generation. It's sort of much, you know, like Jimmy Johnny Carson esque type. Like Billy Crystal was the guy who hosted the Oscars everybody loved, and he very much put on a very Johnny Carson esque monologue. And then, you know, they've shifted gears there's david letterman's disastrous hosting year with oprah uma which just fell flat i was there by the way oh well that was was a good one and then you had a disaster of trying to get a celebrities to host it with james franco and um uh uh, her name's escaping me but um that was a total disaster um you know so but it's, it's it's sort of like this idea of a host is very sort of late night TV. And we could see a lot of the late night television hosts are losing ratings. There's never going to be another person as high as Johnny Carson. Well, late night TV is sketch comedy more now than it is the talk show that it was. Yeah, then Matt did make a point of saying like, well, you look at what CBS is going to try with the Tonys, which is they're going to basically make, there's going to they're present three, three or four awards on the live broadcast and everything else is going to be pushed to Paramount+. Plus. So it's going to focus more on the entertainment, which is really what the job of these shows are, is to sort of give people something that they wouldn't necessarily be able to see. And I think that's a lot with some of what with the Oscars has forgotten. It's a lot of performative and sort of virtue signaling and all this other nonsense that people really don't want to tune in for. Yeah, If they made it more about entertaining exclusively and doing like, numbers or you know musical numbers or singing and just make it more of like a concert slash appreciation of movies and with awards sprinkled throughout that's all you really need and i think maybe that would get people involved but maybe not i don't know there is something generational about just the the desire to want to turn every stage into an influence opportunity and and throw a conversation out there um but there is I think there's a new naivete coming in. And honestly, the reason why like we would want to go to other platforms and especially with our ability to consume, you know, media across all all platforms. So like the idea of Paramount Plus is like it's not it's a smart idea because there's so much media to consume. Um, it allows you to not just be force fed something. And I there's some, at least for me personally, and I would imagine for others too, is that there's some response to being handed an agenda or being having to listen to somebody's platform um, that you might agree with or not, doesn't matter. Like, am I just watching somebody, um, you know, give a, give a speech of, of, you know, to influence me in some way, opposed to like, sometimes I turn on entertainment just to be naive, just to be entertained. It's actually, it's a section away from that. And so if I have all these choices of things and way to entertain myself, do I really want to, you know, be preached to honestly? Um, and I think the award shows you're right. We're really about the fa- the fashion, the red carpet, the glitz, and what's there. So, I, you, you think the um, do you think the Paramount Plus thing is that like a Brian Robbins kind of influence there? Yeah, I mean, probably. Um, I think you know the news was made official this week, and he's taking over, and Jim is basically being shown the door. Uh, and the CFO gave a, a, a talk not at a conference this past week and basically said three words, streaming, streaming, streaming. Like it's basically the future. And I think Brian Robbins really represents that. And I think he is definitely leaning into it. And I think that that's definitely a, a part of what's playing into all of this um, because Jim is, is an old school theatrical guy. He loves movies 
He's committed to that process. But unfortunately, I think the industry is starting to move away from that. Um, yeah, you think? <laughs> yeah, maybe a little. Um, and, you know, you look at... I don't the, think we'd have a podcast if it wasn't, Keith. I'm pretty sure that's... Well, you look at sort of the chieftains who are still in charge right now. So you got Tom Rothman at Sony, who has sort of decided to play the game of almost like, well, we'll... We'll play a little bake off and we'll we'll give stuff to Netflix here or we'll give stuff to Amazon here. So he's playing that game. Then you have Donna Langley, who's sort of playing this idea of like, well, we're going to experiment and see what works best. Now, of course, as we talked about last week, there could also be the underlying fact that Peacock is not doing so well. So they need to goose it a little bit. Hence the Halloween kills. Oh, yeah. Um, but they they won Christopher Nolan's next movie. And it was largely because they were committed to the theatrical experience. Unfortunately for Jim, like he's committed to theatrical experience, but his boss's boss, Sherry Redstone, really, I think, is priming Viacom CBS for a sale, basically. And I think in order to do that, she's got to goose the price. And if you're looking at the stock price, and if you're looking at sort of the pattern of the last 18 months or so, what goose is a stock price for an entertainment conglomerate? Streaming. And their numbers, yeah. like Disney Plus, is a perfect, yeah, yeah. perfect example of that. So until Paramount Plus starts to have that sort of Disney esque type, culturally relevant material on their their streaming service, it's just not going to happen. And there, I just don't think Jim was as committed to streaming um, as you know some of his uh, other people at you know um, the other. The studios so it all kind of plays in maybe they can uh, scoop up hbo since hbo got yeah. <laughs> uh, dropped by amazon or amazon got dropped by i'm just kidding maybe well maybe there's a amazon's looking for a new partner maybe there's some opportunity well in that. I yeah know. i mean it's interesting when you and i were talking about that on linkedin you know i was in the midst of doing some more digging because it didn't really make any sense to me why would you do this to yourself especially when you're trying to establish your come on your brand and i and all of what all I can really discern is that it was more an issue of Amazon's very particular about how they share data on the uh, customers who purchase mm. the service. And HBO Max, HBO really wanted those not that detail, and they weren't going to get it. Uh, apparently, this decision was made two years ago when they first launched HBO Max, and they made the decision that they weren't going to... Um, stay on H Amazon. They're still on Fire TV. HBO Max is still on Fire TV, but you can no longer subscribe to HBO on Amazon. And what did they say? They were they lost how many subscribers? Uh, there is 5 million, I think. And then today they announced a price cut. So they're obviously um, worried. And the HBO Max head, scoop it up. Yeah. yeah, Casey Blois yeah. came out and said, oh, we're not about you know digital metrics. We care more about quality. I'm like, okay, really? Yeah, okay. Well, you may care about that. <laughs> and to be clear, it was a it was a plug-in to Prime. So if you they were basically Amazon was offering HBO. Well, you can subscribe through Amazon to HBO. Yeah. And now you can no longer do that. But if you were stream if you were stream if you were in, in Prime and you found an HBO, you can find HBO shows there and then you could yeah. select it in Prime and watch in Prime with your subscription. Correct. So I believe that's how they're yes. I, I feel like they're just moving off the Prime platform. I thought it was um it's interesting uh, what you're saying, because I figured it was more of a co competition move. Just like Warner Brothers is, seems to be trying to figure out what, what they're doing and uh, uh, kind yeah. of doubling down a little bit. on the whole platform move. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, with the whole deal with Chris Nolan 
Yeah. Um, basically moving on, right? So to be fair to the current regime, like I don't envy anyone who was in that situation with Tenet and trying to figure out, and they probably all knew the movie wasn't going to play that well, simply because it was so confusing. Um, but to be fair, I don't really think it was the current regime, like Toby Emmerich and those guys who brought Nolan to the lot. That was Jeff Robinoff, who was president of production years ago. He was the one who really started the relationship with Nolan and then made the Batmans and yeah, brilliant all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, so it, it was a, it's more late, but obviously he was not happy with how things went with Tenet. But when you look at, you know, Hollywood Reporter had a very interesting article this past week about sort of the terms that he was setting. It was committed $100 million spend, ma- matching spend on marketing, three weeks before and after the movie releases that no other releases from the studio are put on those dates. And a minimum... Now, the, the, this number ranged between 100 and 130, but a minimum of 100 days in the theater before it goes to any home entertainment service. Wow. Now, the particulars are still being worked. So 100-day block, right? Yeah. They basically said 100-day block, yeah. So he's yeah. basically saying, like, this is going to the movie theater. You cannot move it to a streaming service. And I guess it was, it was Donna Langley from Universal, Tom Rothman from Sony, and Jim Giannopoulos from Paramount, prior to him being let go, were all shunted up to Nolan's place up in the Hollywood Hills where he edits his movies to read the script. And basically that was, and then he set out his terms and Sony was like, oh, we can't agree to that. Jim was sort of taken out because he wasn't the head of the studio anymore. And Donna okay. apparently said yes. So... <laughs> But to be fair, it's also a sign that you can still work with filmmakers and have the strategy of putting things day and date on your streaming service. So it still works. There's still a way to make it work. You can kind of have it both ways, but we'll see because apparently the particulars of the deal are still being worked out. So I don't know if they'll commit to all of his terms. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's a, it's a big ask. It's a, it's a movie about Robin Oppenheimer, who was the head of the Manhattan project that developed the nuclear bomb. Yeah, sure. My, uh, mom's uncle, my mom's uncle worked on the, Oh really? With Oppenheimer. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. cool. So it's a fascinating story, but it, I bet it'd be interesting with Chris. Yeah. Chris, no one will probably add layers to it and understand it. Yeah. Sure. Well, to, to me, like the, um, the filmmaker point of view in this thing, like we we're giving the filmmaker a lot of opportunity and voice when we talk about Chris Nolan and, you know, to some degree he's earned it. Like he's brought in the audiences. He has a very clear vision and picture. I think there's some, even some loyalty to Chris Nolan greater than loyalty to other things that make them successful actors, um, writers, right. yep. studios, like he, there's a following there no matter what. But I think some of the shift that we're having and, and, I'll bet you the agents we're working on here is do we, do we care about the filmmaker or are we just trying to make different? We're just trying to create consumption. Like we're just trying to keep trying to keep up with consumption. And those demands are so high. I mean, think about that's just an investment for a film that on a platform, it might last 15 days on a platform. Like, you know, it's not the repeatability of watching something over and over again. I mean, there's a long tail to it, but yeah. I mean, that's, that's a huge investment to get people's attention for a very short time of a year's worth of programming and where you almost, people are consuming at such a high rate. And it's also a very 
it's a very complicated subject matter. It's a historical piece, which is going to turn off a big bulk of your audience because people just sometimes don't want to uh, spend two hours. If he does it in a way, if he doesn't do a Citizen Kane kind of a thing. If he does it in the right way, but if it's it's the classic Christopher Nolan sort of, you know, I, I'm intrigued by it just because I think he's a fantastic filmmaker and the stories he tells are always compelling. And I think you're right in that it's one of those movies that while everyone's jawing at it for right now, it's in sort of the consumption space. It may be an awards contender, but is it really a movie that you're going to want to see repeatedly? Like, that's a big question. I mean, I always go back to what, when I first started my career at New Line and Toby Emmerich was the president of production, he said something to all of us way back when, and he said, this is right after I think A Beautiful Mind had won Best Picture. And he said, yeah, it's a good movie, but what makes a great movie? And he said, in my mind, a great movie is when you're sitting flipping through the channels and you see it on one of the cable channels and you stop and you have to watch it. Yeah. Because you had such a visceral connection to it when you saw it the first time. Yeah. Every time it's on, you have to stop watching. Like for me, one of those movies is Goodfellas. It's on all the time. I cannot not watch at least 10 minutes of it. <laughs> if it's on. I, I, I thought you were going to say, uh, I thought you were going to say Pitch Perfect because I know you ah! every time you find Pitch Perfect. You well, Pitch to... Perfect, it, it's definitely one that I stop on every now and then. But <laughs> because, I'll, okay, now I got to explain Pitch Perfect because now everyone's going to think that I like weird movies. But... No, no, my brother is the same way. My brother, no matter which one, two, or three, the thing's on. He stopped. But Pitch Perfect was one of those movies because I watched it on a flight. I was flying back with my wife from Boston to LA, which is a, that's coast to coast, baby. And that is a long ass flight. Yeah. yeah. So I needed something to entertain me. And that was the only thing running. I had heard of it, but I didn't see it in the theaters. And when my wife and I both watched it and we, after it was over, it was like, wow, that was a, pre- yeah. that was an enjoyable film. And those are the movies you remember because it's so unexpected. I saw for the first time ever on an airplane too. And I just, I laughed the very first one. I was just laughing. I thought it was so funny. And then I, I told my wife, I got home. I'm like, Hey, let me watch this movie. It was just so funny. And her friend was over. I'm like, let's, let's watch it. Right. And I watched it well, on the plane. There are scenes that aren't on the plane, like the vomit scene where the lady's laying around the vomit oh. <laughs> rolling around. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, those, I don't remember that part of the movie. You gotta admit, the airplane edit was, yeah, airplane was edit. better than the original yeah. edit. Like it was yeah. so much better, but I'm, I'm just kidding you. I, I, my, that just came to mind. I'm yeah. like the, the thing you flip through the channels on, because there is something, I do believe there is some content that you want to watch over and over again. Yeah. And I think when I watch a Chris Nolan film, or what's we'll say like, I think today's model of, of you know, consumer consumption of, of these, uh, of entertainment, needs some long play to it. Mm-hmm. The studios just cannot keep up with the demand at which they're consuming things. I mean, I think the Pluto TV move with um, Paramount Plus 2,500 pieces of content or 25,000 pieces of content, whatever the thing was, was just recognizing that's how much the consumption volume is. Yeah. But the minute you put all of Pluto TV onto Paramount Plus, there's not another Pluto TV waiting out there when that content runs out. Yeah. So the the shifts are go- have to take place where we say let's let's be smarter about how we're making this content and see if we can't get it to volume 
Netflix is obviously doing it. They just make bad stuff, but, but they're trying to, they're, rec- <laughs> they, they're recognizing it sooner than everyone else is like, well, it doesn't matter if it's good. Let's just put it out there. Like, no, w- what's the shift going to be? And, and I'll bet you, Keith, I'll bet you it's a shift in genre. Mm. I just think that the, the blockbuster going away, the Chris Nolan spectacle goes away with it. And we get back down to rom-com pieces. Well, cause they're easy to shoot small cast. You can do them very fast and they can still be good, right? I mean, you need heavy writers. So yeah. my kids should become writers if they're going to do something in the world because that's what we need. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, I'm going to say something that's somewhat positive about Netflix. So you might black out. But, no, you can't. I, uh, I, I consume Netflix. I'm just saying. Uh, that's <laughs> the one thing they've been surprisingly good at is the rom-coms. They, they hit uh, a, a genre that has basically been ignored by the studios since pretty much the 90s. Um, and that's what some of their bread and butter, some of their franchises like kissing booth and I, someone's boyfriend, I can't remember the title. Um, They're not particularly great movies, but they hit a a spot that's missing. And I, the one thing you made me think of when you brought up the the whole genre shifting is the whole exorcist deal that universal made. They paid an ungodly amount of money for three exorcist movies from Jason Blum. Uh, Jason Blum for Blumhouse. And that's exactly what they're thinking. They're thinking, okay, if one of these is a hit, awesome. We got two more coming. If one's sort of a middling hit, that's okay. We can put it on Peacock. And then we've got another genre that still, as we've talked about here on the podcast, horror and comedy are still the ones that really are enjoyable in a theatrical experience, but it's still a genre that people are uh, sort of drawn to. And The Exorcist has somewhat of a brand attached to it, just because of you know the classic movie from the seventies. So, but horror, horror is like an awesome genre to own because every October you can re-release yes. it and people will reconsume it. It is yes. uh, Halloween and horror is equal to Christmas movies. Yeah. Like we'll always watch Elf and we'll always watch Beetlejuice, right? And Christmas or whatever story. it is, whatever. <laughs> yeah, and Christmas Story. So like you, uh, you know, so the so the horror genre by itself is like again, if you want to break into Hollywood, make an amazing horror character that has a huge franchise to it, because there's once a year you'll get you'll get the play. So that's yeah. I feel like that that's always something. I mean, you're not going to release a horror movie at Valentine's Day, like that's not going to happen. No. Um, but I was watching. Um, probably why rom com popped in my mind is like I was watching Ted Lasso this week, which by the way, uh, Ted Lasso, holy cow. It that what where did that come from on the planet? Because it as a it works so well. I'm a I, I'm afraid I'm gonna get a little tired of it in season three because the character like we're getting it, it was a, as a as an exposition uh, first season incredible yeah second season we're getting adding some depths and now we're creating some of the the tension angles but there's a whole episode that we just watched dedicated to and playing off of and being goofy about rom-coms. That's awesome. So it's brought into the storyline and they reenact it. It's just so clever on so many levels. And uh, it was so funny at the end of it. I thought, I, I mean, these guys have their pulse on the zeitgeist a little bit. Like I think, and it works. So they're like, Oh, I I'll bet you it's an easier shift. Yeah. It's interesting. You bring up Ted Lasso because he's another one that's sort of like, I don't remember how I think, I think somebody told me about it, but it was such the show was such a breath of fresh air and sort of all these like depressing. The world is awful, unprecedented times. We've never blah, 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 blah. And everything around us was depressing and just how awful the world is. 
And then here comes this little show on Apple TV that's just so this guy is just so unbelievably positive. And he's got all yeah. these, it, it's, it was sort of like a representation of how we all felt. Like we try to be so positive in a world that's undeniably cynical. And you kind of put that in sort of a real life scenario where you've got all these cynical characters who have been broken down. You have the old soccer players broken down and done in by the system. You've got the guy who's all about being a celebrity and the sports, a secondary thing. And you've got the woman who's trying to rise to power and she takes over the team, but she really just wants to screw her husband who's been cheating on her. And you've got all these intermixing pieces. And this guy just sort of brings out the best of them. Yeah. And I think that is what was missing. Uh, and now you see a lot of people trying to copy it. No, totally. Yeah. It's a, he's a very transparent person. Yes. So, yeah. he, and very vulnerable. Yeah. So he's not just like Pollyanna. Because that's where I'm almost like, oh, I get where this is going to go. It's basically the UK making fun of Kansas, but it's really <laughs> like he's he expressed the 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 show expresses vulnerability in a season where we need to to understand yes. that and be out yes. there. Um, but you're 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 exactly right in saying the the place you heard about it is from someone else. I why like it, and maybe this just like that's honestly we all know that word of mouth that's our market that's the best marketing on the planet. Yeah. Um, but we all have watched that show because someone told us you should watch Ted Lasso. Matter of fact, if you're watching this and you haven't seen Ted Lasso, we're telling you you should watch, watch Ted, Lasso Ted Lasso and yes. say, "I yeah." Or someone told me about it. Yeah. Um, but I so that whole I think there's a genre shift taking place, and maybe like the you know the Disney theatrical move, like the Disney's going to stay in theatrical, but they can they have they own the brands that have a little bit of that experiential process and I, i'll bet you disney's figured out what they're going to do with the with the theatrical experience i mean they're experience makers right so yeah. I'm, I'm afraid of their their move staying in theatrical um but the challenge that we have and our disconnect now to theatrical is i as i honestly think they're the genres i'm like i don't know so i don't know i feel like we would, we've gone off a pretty big tangent from the the chris nolan thing but yeah it's, it's really interesting just to like watch hollywood play itself out well it's interesting you bring up disney because i there is one more thing i don't i do want to comment on before we wrap up but yes they're committed to they they said they're going to release them theater it doesn't mean they're not going to release them on disney plus too it's all going to depend on the environment but they did say that all these movies are definitely being theatrical releases and then i saw steven spielberg's west side story the trailer for it and there was a part of me that's like okay yeah this is the kind of thing you want to see in a theater but also but I've seen this done a million times before. It's like, it's this sort of movie musical. It's sort of hearkening back to what was great about the movies back in the day. So it's very timely in that regard. And, you know, there's a lot of things that evolved since the time in the sixties when the original was made and it's a great film and they've made tweaks to the musical itself over the years, but it still felt like, I, I, it's almost like we've been here before we're running the Hollywood's just out of ideas and it's and yes. The Spielberg side of it is intriguing. The fact that the uh, girl who plays Maria was a total unknown picked out of a bunch of unknowns. And so there's that sort of yeah, that's cool. old school, like make a star out of a note of somebody who really wasn't uh, known to anyone. So, yeah, the whole Starlet thing. Starlet, yeah, that's that's kind of cool. And the way he shot it, you can see it's very like bright, colorful. 
like Spielberg movies are always colorful. You're never going to get a dark gray, blanched <laughs> movie with Spielberg, yeah. but unless it plays to the sort of the story he's telling, but for the most part, he usually is pretty bright and colorful, entertaining. But anyway, I, I bring this up because I watched the trailer and I was so like, I don't know how I feel about it. I want to like it. Yeah. At the same time, I'm like, God, I feel like there's nothing here that I haven't seen a million times before. Well, I already have the title for the episode. There are episode after West, after we see West Side Story. I already have the title for it. What's the title? Because <laughs> it's just going to say like Spielberg's last song question mark. Because it's like that we. I just can't believe there's a day where we're going to say Spielberg is not relevant anymore. But I, but I've already said that for a year on this show. Yeah. It's just not relevant anymore. And it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. He's obviously has it had influence since he was 20. His first, uh, Jaws was, he was 21 when he did Jaws. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so he, he's had his era and time. Um, but we're just seeing the end to that moment. And I, I might love what I saw. I might, I don't know what this film is and I'm a big film fan. So I'm not poo-pooing anything until I've seen it. Yeah. I barely poo-poo on anything except for Netflix things. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, but the the uh, I think you're right. Like the appeal to something like that is so short-lived and doesn't resonate. Like I can't imagine grabbing my kids at, uh, on you know Thanksgiving and saying, "Hey, let's go go watch West Side Story." And have my kids going, "Wait, what? What's, what's are we that? watching? Why are we doing that?" I have to say, like, "No, it's a musical," and then. Cause I know the whole backstory of why we would watch it. Um, so maybe they'll rediscover it. I, I'm, my hope is, is that there's something really awesome in a rediscovery. Well, I mean, it could also, you could also say it could be similar to like a star Wars experience. Like maybe a parent has an attachment to that movie and seeing the remake in a theater, maybe some way for the parent to communicate with his, his or her children versus the same way that star Wars really bridged a gap. Yeah, for a series of parents and their kids. Um, the other thing is, it's interesting. You mean like you mean episode seven, right? The, yeah, because I thought right. that did it so well. Yeah, 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 JJ. exactly. Yeah. I mean, you think about like Spielberg, and in my mind, I think of like Super Eight, which was like basically a homage to Super Spielberg thing films. Yeah, and even a lot of uh, way Stranger Things is sort of a harken back to the eighties of Spielberg and where he was so dominant culturally, and it's almost tying into sort of like what Ted Lasso is doing in terms of being just so present in the culture that it's relevant. And that's what Spielberg was so good at. Cause in the eighties, there was just a moment where we all just kind of wanted to be taken to a fantasy land or just be transported to the wonder we had when we were children. And that's what he was so effective at capturing similar to what Ted Lasso is doing by capturing this idea that, we're surrounded by a bunch of cynics and everyone needs a little bit of vulnerability and positivity every now and then to sort of break through the hard rough and tumble that life often curveballs that life often throws at you. But anyway, I'm waxing full lot philosophical. <laughs> no, no, it's fun. I, uh, I think there's a reality there. Um, yeah, we'll see. And I'll say like, I'll kind of drop this bomb as we, we get off, but um you know, the, the involvement I've had with these entertainment companies that are doing things in NFT, it is the NFT space 
is so early in its genesis. It's probably confusing to most people of what, what it, how it even works and what's going on there. But the entertainment brands that have already started mm-hmm. and are growing that you've probably not heard of, um, I feel like there's an evolution taking place there, even of just how we understand technology, our interface to it, um, our ownership of it. Because it's so interesting, right? Like right now, all, everything we, you and I talk about, we don't own any. I don't own a DVD of it. I don't right. own the song I play. Right. Where there was a sense of ownership originally. At least I own. At least I owned the cassette tape back yeah. in the eighties. Like I can play it as many times as I want to. And now I have to. I have to rent. I have to rent it from the platforms. Yeah. Um, that there's these new things evolving that are super opportunities for people in this venue are in the entertainment space to understand. It might not ever been the dream of Hollywood that you wanted that you wanted to get into when you got started, but as we've been saying over and over again, that was gone before you got started. So the things that are in front of us are pretty interesting. Um, so I, I'm honestly excited about what's what we're going to see in the next year or so and yeah. have this thing play out. We're, I don't think we mentioned once during this podcast, so I'm going to use it at the end. Like we didn't mention the pandemic once at it. We basically have recognized and established <laughs> there's something new and there's yeah. new great things happening and we're just recognizing how it plays out. So that's yeah. pretty cool. Yep. I agree. Awesome. All right, my friend, it was good to see you this week. Thanks for doing this with Same me. Same way. Likewise. Wait, some, who's coming up uh, in the next couple of weeks? Oh, we got a few. So um, next week we have uh, Jeremy Gershman who's returning for his part two of his five part series as he so, so diligently pitched us on <laughs> his first. Appearance. I love it. Uh, and then after that, we have um, uh, Cam- uh, Cameron Dillavu from Amazon. So maybe we'll get some insight into the whole Amazon HBO Max, depending on what she's willing to share. Uh, and then after that, hope. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're warning her now. We're going to ask her. So maybe, <laughs> yeah, right. maybe she'll back out. But yeah, I'm she gonna, might back we out. We have to point. find out something. Um, uh, and then yeah. after that, um, hopefully, um, haven't confirmed yet, but um, Richard Rushfield will be returning for another. Oh yeah. Visit on Hollywood break. So that's what we've got coming yeah. up. So busy few weeks coming up. Richard, man, he's giving us some comments on YouTube. We got people out there that are fans of Richard. We got I know. Gotta I know. Bring him back. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks. Sir. Thanks again. And thanks if you're for watching and being part of what we're doing here. We appreciate you being part of our community, processing what's going on in Hollywood and recognizing what's happening in trends. If you're not yet a subscriber, please feel free to subscribe uh, on your podcast. It does help us um, in talking to people and getting them on the platform. So the more you're part of our community, the greater the, uh, we can grow and more people will be part of it. So uh, thanks for all you're doing. Lydia, thanks for what you always do every single week, getting us together, making sure my camera is set up and all that great stuff and not having the weird <laughs> stuff in the corner. And of course, Connor, uh, for the research that you help us behind the scenes. And Keith, so great to have you. Thanks, I'm Tim. glad we got through this episode without getting you getting in trouble with your wife. <laughs> being too loud. That is true. Not being too loud today. <laughs> <Yeah>. Yay. <laughs> All right. Have a good week. We'll see you next week. See you next week.